Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 216 being recorded on Thursday, April 16th. 2020. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Jason, we've had on our list uh, of folks who want to have on the show for a while, uh, our guest today. Uh, But because we have a weird recording schedule, because you and I have day jobs, we usually record late at night, and that's inconvenient for most guests. Uh, we were excited. Uh, one of the silver linings of the pandemic is we can now record during the day. So uh, we are really excited to have Joe Kazukinas, also known as Joe. Uh, Joe is the CEO and founder of Marketplace Pulse. Welcome to the show, Joe. Hey, Jason and Scott. Thanks for having me. It's awesome to finally have you on the show, Joe. And as uh, Scott pointed out, I'm having trouble adapting to this giant uh, yellow orb uh, that's facing me while I record a podcast that feels very unusual for me. Um, so Joe, I know you've listened to the show before, before we jump into it, uh, what, we always like to get a little bit of background uh, about our guests. So can you tell us a little bit about what you, you did prior to Marketplace Pulse and, and what led you to, uh, to start it? So I think all the way back in 2008, uh, me and a bunch of friends started a books e-commerce company kind of a Amazon 0.1. Um, and then 10 years forward from that, uh, I've been much more focused on marketplaces and kind of understanding the markets both here in the US and, and worldwide. That's awesome. And so then, um, did like, w- what gave you the actual inspiration to uh, launch, launch the like sort of editorial side versus being a practitioner? Um, it's funny because I was reading about, uh, biggest stars on YouTube and it kind of me, it kind of made me think like who would be the biggest retailers and the biggest merchants on marketplaces specifically being Amazon. So marketplace Pulse ended up starting off as literally a list of top Amazon sellers. Actually, it used to be called top Amazon sellers.com and, um, since the launch, I started noticing that a lot of sellers and a lot of brands in the space kept coming to the site to check their rankings to see how everyone else was doing. And since we were kind of collecting so much data and through that data, getting so much insight that over time kind of led more and more towards the editorial content as we kind of, the, the trends we're seeing, the, the changes we're seeing, that the, the data we're seeing, that all of that led to content. And I guess when, when next thing you know, it, it editorial content and kind of sharing articles on our side became a pretty big focus. Very cool. Um, so, so tell us where does the data come from? So, so uh, I think I have an idea, but I, I kind of want to hear it from you um, and, you know, maybe include what marketplaces does your technology look at? Um, and then what types of things do you look at across those marketplaces? So we tried to look at all the major marketplaces, uh, both in the U S and in Europe and elsewhere. So like Amazon, eBay, Walmart, uh, Google Shopping, Target Marketplace, Wish, Etsy, and I'm sure and, and others as well. And and the data we collect 
is, is kind of centered around probably two main areas. First one being over merchants and sellers and marketplaces. And the second one being uh, brands and products. And so to understand that and to kind of get the data, we just run a pretty, pretty large kind of data ingestion uh, operation, which relies on scraping and APIs and all like partners and other sources of data. We collect as much as we can. We kind of clean it, we store it, we archive it obviously over the years. And then whatever a use case becomes, we, we are able to look, look back at the data and, and provide that. Because actually as a business, we work primarily with other companies who are building marketplaces themselves. So we, we help them with that by providing data on the, on the kind of the leading marketplaces. But also since we look at this data all the time and we talk to people like, like yourselves all the time, we, we also kind of get questions asked and we try to answer these questions from our data and kind of publish them on our site. So if Jason and I opened up a uh, marketplace for our podcast um, that featured uh, travel, coffee, and Star Wars stuff, uh, we could come to you and say, hey, what are the top selling Star Wars items across these categories and what's big in coffee? And you can you can look into that data set and then make recommendations based on what you see across marketplaces. Is that a, is that a good use case? Yeah, we can help you figure out the categories, the brands you should be selling where would you be sourcing these brands? So like which sellers can provide you that assortment as well as getting into more specific details like, hey, which partners you should be working to help you with the onboarding of sellers or like what's the partner ecosystem even looking for you? So it's kind of a multidimensional problem for a marketplace because it's it's really not just the products you can onboard, but also like where these products are coming from, who's fulfilling them, who are the partners in the software space, et cetera, et cetera. Even without your data, I'm pretty sure travel is not a good category during the pandemic. <laughs> it's definitely long not. term. It's definitely not long term. Uh, I like it. And and so, like, do you have full time developers that are constantly like having to sort of tweak your your data acquisition tools as as the marketplaces sort of change their their presentations? Uh, so we are a tiny company, but. Luckily, we rely on a lot of automation to kind of validate the data we're ingesting as well as to notice any sort of changes in the kind of ingestion pipeline. So that's usually not a big problem for us. Any sort of changes these marketplaces make uh, end up getting handled pretty pretty quickly. Do you ever just sell the data? So I, I know um, from my experience at Channel Advisor, there's about a bazillion Wall Street people that want to build hedge funds off data like this and do all kinds of crazy things. Is is that part of your business model or it's really more um, kind of advisory services based on the data? So we do sell data, but primarily to marketplaces and kind of software and services companies in the space of e-commerce. We had had many conversations with Wall Street companies as well, but I guess so far we found that there are much better sources in this kind of alternative data space for the Wall Street market, primarily being like most of them utilize kind of credit card and email processing data rather than the data of, about the marketplace itself. So like if, you, if, you're, if you're in Wall Street and you want to understand Amazon, you're much better off acquiring credit card data than what we can provide for you because the sort of things they're looking for are much more kind of particular to the noise. And I guess our data would just have too much noise for them. But we had kind of, we, we, we at least 
we at least did try to kind of help them understand what is even the Amazon marketplace because <laughs> of of all the kind of, of all the e-commerce players in the space, I do still find that it's kind of the most misunderstood player in the space, given how large it is. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Um, just to follow up on the data, uh, so I think of you like your methods. You're gonna get much better visibility to the digital shelf, like what products are offered, like the velocity that stuff is moving on and off shelves, um, like any, any of the attributes about the products that are on the shelf, uh, that, that like credit card data set you mentioned is going to see a lot more about the consumer behavior. So it almost seems like they're, they're two sort of different data points that like together tell an interesting story. Am I thinking about that right? Or yeah, that's true. That's true. So we, we try not to spend too much effort in trying to estimate sales velocity for anything, because that's really well done from credit card data and kind of emails and all the other alternative data sources. I guess we spend much more effort collecting data on like all the building blocks. So like the products themselves, the brands themselves, all the merchants and sellers and categories and how all of that kind of space looks like uh, on a kind of very granular level. Yeah. Now I'm curious. You started out as an e-commerce entrepreneur, um, and now you you're super deep and knowledgeable about um, the the sort of opportunities that are, you know emerge in the marketplaces, like where where there's a gap between uh, demand and offers, and you know where there's a good source of product and all these things. Like it has to be tempting sometimes to want to act on that data yourself versus uh, selling that insight to others. True, true. But at least for now, the focus has been much more on the data side of things as well as like the market itself and just setting the market. And uh, <laughs> I think having been in in this in the, kind of in the position of selling things before, uh, I both miss it and don't miss it at the same time. Especially especially in times like these where kind of sales are compressed for everyone and marketing budgets are tough. I, I I'm, I'm, I guess I'm somewhat happy not to be selling uh, any products at, at the given moment. Yeah, uh, t- fair enough. Um, and then I did one other granular question about the data. Uh, so like of the people that are like watching marketplaces and sort of um, extrapolating data from marketplaces, uh, it seems like you you do extrapolate data about the products, but what uh, you're, you're also getting a lot of data about the sellers of the product. And so I actually think of, there's some other companies out there that also like monitor the digital shelf and they, they focus mostly on product data and they sell that actually back to brands. So I think of like uh, Edge Essential or Profiteero or companies like that that kind of monitor the digital shelf to tell Procter & Gamble how, you know, how their product uh, is being presented versus someone else's. But uh, the data source that I, I see, like you leverage a lot that I, I'm not familiar with anyone else that provides is information on the, the actual sellers, like how many sellers they are, you know, are they domestic sellers or Chinese sellers, like what categories is the seller base growing, things like that. Am I, am I accurate or am I misinformed there? Absolutely. So this, is, this has been kind of the core data set we've been building since we started uh, specifically being all the sellers and merchants on these marketplaces. And we try to we try to basically collect data on every single merchant on all these marketplaces to have like a full understanding of what's working for these merchants, what are they selling, 
who are the top merchants, where do they come from, like how do they fulfill things, et cetera, et cetera. Because again, on, on marketplaces, differently from an online retailer, on a marketplace, it's not just about the products, it's also about the, the, the kind of the supply side of things and where does that supply side of things comes from. For example, like a question we, we tried to answer uh, before was like, if you shop on Amazon, you notice that there's a lot of items which look like they came from uh, AliExpress or Alibaba. Um, and yet it was unclear at the time like how many of these items are actually sold directly from China as opposed to US-based sellers importing them. So we spent some, some effort trying to figure out, okay, of all the merchants on Amazon or of all, of all mer- merchants on eBay, how many have actually come outside of the US? And that was actually a surprisingly large number um, uh, large number, especially coming from China. Very cool. And and just to siphon up on that one, I mean, that was one of the trends I feel like you uncovered is there was this perception that it was a lot of um, uh, domestic importers and, and you've really been able to track the growth of of Chinese sellers on the, on the platforms. Yeah, I think most people have this impression of Amazon Marketplace as being um, largely um, like a platform for people who drive around to Walmart stores and buy closeouts and then sell them on Amazon Marketplace. That's that's very clearly completely not true. And not only is there uh, many, many different types of businesses here in the US, but you also have an incredibly large portion of the marketplace coming from uh, other countries as far away as China and kind of helped by the kind of Amazon fulfillment services. Yeah. And then the last question, we've been just talking a lot about Amazon, but uh, your data isn't exclusive to Amazon, right? Like what marketplaces are you guys tracking right now? Uh, Amazon, eBay, Walmart, Etsy, Google Shopping, Wish, um, Target Marketplace, and a a few few smaller as well. Got it. And, And mostly the North American iteration of those marketplaces, or are you trying to look globally as well? Uh, we try to look globally. Um, for example, for Amazon, of course, we look at all the countries Amazon is running the marketplace in, which I believe is now 15, uh, 15 countries. Obviously, eBay is a global platform. Etsy is a global platform, which is a global platform. We don't spend too much effort yet on looking at the properties of Alibaba, like Tmall and Taobao. But that's much more so because we just don't have a big business case for that. And uh, I think most most U.S. Uh, brands don't really care about them too much yet. Um, that's why we focus much more on like what's relevant in Europe and in the, in the U.S. Got it. Okay. Well, let's jump into it. So um, obviously, all our listeners are pretty familiar with the the big marketplaces, right? So in the U.S., I, I think mostly of eBay and Amazon. Um, like what? what is the high level story with sort of the tier two marketplaces like the Walmarts and wishes and targets? Are they growing? Are they getting traction? Are they like losing share to the, to Amazon? Like what's, what, what's kind of the, the macro view of marketplaces in North America? To me, I think tier two only has a single company in it and that's Walmart. Uh, They've launched their marketplace all the way back in 2009, but kind of really got into it. Uh, in 2016 and probably over the last couple of years made it an actual important part of Walmart itself. And just from the announcements you saw about the company as well as the seller acquisition we've done, I think just this week they finally surpassed uh, 40,000 merchants 
which they acquire much very, very differently than Amazon. So that number is actually pretty, pretty large because they require kind of approval to join Walmart Marketplace. So Walmart has done a very good job at integrating the, 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 the marketplace into the kind of overall Walmart selling experience and buying experience. You can return items from the marketplace into Walmart stores as well as all the other stuff. And then you have, to me, I think like a, a, basically a third tier of marketplaces, the likes of Wish and Google Shopping and, and Target marketplaces, which are basically tr- either trying to do similar things like Walmart or, or Amazon has done or are very strong in their, in their own niches. Like, for example, Etsy is obviously not trying to compete with Amazon, but Etsy on their own right is an incredibly strong uh, marketplace in the handmade and vintage goods. And um, and to me, it's probably the most exciting kind of development in the space is, is, is probably all the niche marketplaces, marketplaces which focus on a particular category of products or a particular use case. Obviously, Etsy is the most known now, but you see many more in, you know, in clothing, in sneakers, in uh, streetwear, in any sort of imaginable category. And they tend to do the content around uh, the marketplace much better. So they not only they integrate supply, they also kind of build uh, content and, uh, and editorial content around it, which tends to work really, really well. Uh, and, and, and then you probably have uh, even more so kind of, kind of traditional retailers still trying to launch their own marketplaces. But to me, that's um, probably like an old strategy. Kind of companies trying to be much more like Amazon, but um, they're probably not kind of strong players at the moment. Gotcha. So just to kind of put some rough orders of magnitude to this, like like how many sellers are are on Amazon right now? On Amazon, there's over 8 million sellers worldwide. So 3 million just on Amazon.com in the US. And then, uh, and do you have an estimate for the number of SKUs that are offered? Or ASIN? Uh, it's funny because we get asked about this uh, on, on specifically on Amazon's SKU count all the time. And as of probably the last two years, we have stopped tracking that number because it became completely meaningless. I think the last number we had from years back was uh, 550, so 550 million SKUs. And since then, it became even larger. And yet, it doesn't, it, it kind of it no longer represents any sort of meaningful metric to track because like, Amazon adding 100 million more SKUs no longer represents any sort of measurable sales growth. Because these SKUs get kind of yeah. hidden in the in the vast universe of the of the Amazon. Yeah, and I assume there's a a tremendous amount of churn in there too. So like they added a hundred million SKUs, but a hundred million SKUs died, and no one's ever going to see them again. Yeah, Amazon is Amazon's assortment is the most chaotic assortment in retail probably ever invented because it not only are they having thousands of new sellers every day all these sellers are bringing probably tens or hundreds of thousands of often new products new private label products on the marketplace every day so like the sort of changes in the SKU count are pretty much meaningless yeah but but it's still helpful to me in this one context this sort of order of magnitude context so so amazon's got three million sellers in the u.s and hundreds of millions of SKUs. um yes. and then you you kind of ca- characterized walmart as a growing tier two marketplace. So put that in perspective for us. You said that was 40,000 merchants versus three Walmart million. has 40,000 merchants and they have much less than Amazon because they're kind of an invite only approval marketplace. So you can't just join uh, Walmart. They would have 10 times more merchants if it was open. 
Yeah. And Walmart has uh, 50 million SKUs at the moment. Yeah. And, and if I'm not wrong, 50 million actually represents tremendous recent growth from them because before they really leaned in in the marketplace, they probably had under a million SKUs. Yeah. So one of the numbers we, we, we always track about Walmart is how much of their catalog comes from Walmart itself and how much of that comes from the marketplace. And pretty much since 2016, all of the growth has come from the marketplace. Like Walmart itself still only sells, uh, I believe, 3 million SKUs. And all the other SKUs have come from the marketplace. Interesting. Um, and so then, like, what is your sense? Is there, and so, so you kind of, you gave us this nice framework, tier one, uh, Amazon, eBay, tier two, Walmart, and then uh, tier three, general merchants, Wish, Google, Target, and then niche uh, niche marketplaces. Uh, is there more opportunities for general merchant uh, marketplaces? Like, could you see a Google or Target catching up to Walmart and being a tier two player? Could, could Walmart like ever catch up to eBay and, you know, be an alternative to tier, tier one player? Or do you feel like for, uh, I, I assume you're going to say there's plenty of opportunity left for niche marketplaces, but like for the general merchants, like is, uh, has that played out in your mind or do you think there's still a lot of um, uh, opportunity for people to capture share? Uh, to me, I think there's kind of two stories in this. First, it's very clearly that, we're going to establish large retailers like targets and best buys should be able to fairly easily to grow a marketplace similar like Walmart and achieve the same sort of kind of merchant growth as well as well as skew growth. I guess for companies like target, the question is, do they actually want that? Because if you look at their um, latest quarters, they've been saying that most of their sales growth is coming from store delivery. You can't really integrate the marketplace into store delivery as easily. And no, actually, no one has done that in the U.S. still. So technically, you could do that on Target. But in reality, they probably won't. Or at least they're not going to try it because the stores are working so well for them. And then on a second tier, I think, like to me, Google, Google's attempt is probably the most exciting because uh, they are also a tech company like Amazon. And they also have, theoretically, an unlimited amount of capital to go after Amazon. So if, if Google really pushed the pedal uh, to, to the floor and actually tried to go after Amazon, I think they could do a pretty good job given the sort of assets they have, given the sort of user traffic they already have. Um, but I think for all of these companies, uh, the question is like, do they actually want that? Because um, you can become like, I don't know, a couple billion dollar a year marketplace uh, launched by Google somewhat easily. But like Google wants to build hundred billion dollar businesses, not the billion dollar businesses. So competing with Amazon or launching like a meaningful business for all of these companies means having to wait many, many years before it becomes uh, meaningful. And it's unclear yet of like, is anyone willing to actually wait that? Yeah, interesting. And it, it is, it's funny, like you could imagine an alternative reason Google would want to grow it besides just the revenue. Like they have this, super important, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollar revenue stream uh, called advertising um, that they need to protect, right? And, and, and if, uh, if the marketplaces are stealing the eyeballs and the advertising from Google, like one, one reason Google might want, you know, more, a, a stronger marketplace would be to keep the eyeballs in their ecosystem and not have leaked them to, 
to an Amazon or someone else. I think you're completely right. Like a lot of shopping already happens at Google. Just Google itself doesn't really monetize it as much as it wants to, nor it can control it as well as it probably wants to. They obviously have Google Shopping and they have some rich content. It, it, Google as a company has done many, many things, but like they're all kind of in parts and then none of them are connected to an actual shopping entity people can go to. And uh, they are like over the last couple of years, again, Google Shopping has built a marketplace. They're adding merchants all the time. They're going to SKU count. They're trying different things, but um, they're, they're not as sort of all out attempts as you probably would expect from a company as, kind of as, as big as Google. Yeah, and I, uh, we'll see how it all plays out. But one thing that get, that makes me want to watch them even a little closer is, you know, like four months ago, they did hire Bill Reddy from PayPal and created a new role they didn't have at Google prior. So he's president of commerce at Google. And so, you know, you sort of bring in a credible e-commerce leader, create this new title, like there's these endemic reasons they might want to do better at commerce. So like that, that at least... Uh, Gives gives me reason to uh, to believe that they're going to lean more heavily in into the space. To me, though, I think there's one kind of important caveat: is how can Google do this and not upset antitrust watchers? Yeah. Um, because for Google, like them adding shopping usually means adding shopping elements into search or all the other properties they already own. They were already fined for similar attempts in Europe a couple of years back anything more meaningful would probably risk some of these fines again. So for Google, it's the kind of a balancing act of like, how do you actually do that without upsetting the kind of ecosystem of people who now rely on Google search traffic for their uh, shopping? Yeah, no, for sure. I feel like that's one of the new normals, right? Is is sort of balancing your business growth aspiration with your your antitrust risks. Because um, argue they they kind of did this with travel though. So so they did this in travel where you can actually book right in Google and they got away with it. So I don't yeah. I don't know. For example, like if Walmart joins Google Shopping Marketplace and people can just buy through Google from Walmart, like does Walmart want that or do they want people to go to actual Walmart and then buy from there? Um, it's kind of all of these has advantages and disadvantages, but ultimately the larger the retailer is, the less they want to be aggregated behind an aggregator like Google. Um, so I, I just, I, I could never foresee Google being able to aggregate large retailers like Target or, or Walmart. They will always refuse to be a part of this. Yeah, I guess the one edge case where it seems like there might be some leverage for them to aggregate the big retailers is literally just as a foil to Amazon, right? So, you know, uh, if Amazon, you know, if Alexa gets the most traction and Alexa gets built into all these appliances and everyone's, um, you know, now everyone's appliances is reordering pantry items uh, exclusively from Amazon. If you're uh, Walmart or Target, you're unlikely to build your own smart speaker ecosystem to compete with Alexa. Um, and so, you know, you may look at Google as the the less competitive, more friendly partner um, that you might try to enable to be a more complete competitor against Amazon. But there's some people from uh, Google Cloud, which is the competitor of AWS, and their business pitch to retailers is basically, we hate Amazon, you hate Amazon, how about you just move all your cloud infrastructure to Google Cloud? And that works really, really well. So yes, I completely agree. Like there are a lot of kind of players in this space who would rather, who would do anything else but work with Amazon. 
that's an opportunity. Yeah, I think that's actually the official sales pitch for Google Cloud Platform and for Microsoft Azure. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a very easy pitch. I'll take it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so one other topic we want to talk about um, in general on the marketplace is, is uh, what, if any, role you see D2C companies playing in this whole marketplace evolution. Like intuitively, like if I took a, a real literal definition, uh, like it doesn't seem like D2C and marketplace like are super compatible, but uh, it seems like in practice, a lot of D2Cs think their, their direct-to-consumer play is via marketplaces. Is that do I have that right, or how do you think about it? Um, I think it depends on kind of a, the purity of a brand is trying to be. Uh, I, am, I am seeing a lot of small niche marketplaces in the DTC space who focus on a particular category. So, for example, I saw uh, I was talking to these guys maybe last month who built a marketplace specifically for streetwear, uh, and all the brands inside of it are all the DTC brands. Because the marketplace can bring them, obviously, shoppers as well as data they couldn't get on a traditional marketplace like Amazon. And yet, the DTC brand has a more manageable kind of acquisition path than just trying to do it themselves. Because to me, the the reason why kind of DTC doesn't work on Amazon or any other of these major marketplaces is the fact how how these marketplaces handle data exchange as well as kind of user interactions. It, it doesn't have to be like that. So the, the kind of the, the more modern marketplaces built for the DTC space do share a lot more data than Amazon does and do, sh- and do give the way for brands to talk to their consumers through that marketplace. And, and all of a sudden, then all of this becomes possible. So I think, like, is Amazon a great home for DTC brands? Well, funny enough, nowadays, because we live in a pandemic and some of these brands will, will inevitably have to kind of rely on Amazon to get some sales out of it. But... Once we are past that, I do see that like a lot more marketplaces will be built specifically for the DTC space. Because what these marketplaces can do is basically aggregate demand, and then the brands can benefit from that much more easily than them, them themselves trying to acquire the same users. It's like marketplaces are the new virtual retailer. You just don't have the, the store element. Yeah. So I think it's always been the case that like if you're Nike, you can build a store in, in the middle of a desert, and people will probably come to you. Like most brands are not Nike. Most brands who build stores in the desert will never see anyone come to them. They can force people to come to them if they just spend a lot of money on marketing, but that obviously has limited time horizon. So as brands try to acquire users uh, at much more favorable costs, like marketplaces do play a pretty important role. And I think they also allow brands to kind of acquire the same user without having to compete with other brands also trying to acquire the same user. Like a lot of brands in travel, like they're all raising uh, advertising costs because they're all trying to acquire the same user, even though that same user is probably buying from all these brands anyway. The one exception is if, if that desert is in Las Vegas or Dubai, people actually will come to it. Uh, I forget which, which Italian <laughs> brand. I think it was Prada who built a, a store in the desert in maybe outside of Texas. Yeah, you're exactly so it's like right. A, it's a it's a fake store, but it's a very funny yeah, photograph. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I think to me, like the lesson from that is like, yes, it looks great. Yes, Prada could do it. No, you're not Prada. Like most brands are not Prada. Most brands, if they tried it, will just lose money. Like so to me, like that's kind of the, like marketplaces versus running your own e-commerce site and trying to do your own acquisition is shopping mall versus your own store in the desert. Like, yes, either of those can work, but like you have to basically decide which one will work better for your kind of capital constraints, I guess. 
Very cool. So uh, that gives us a good overview of the landscape, and it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk a little bit about Amazon. Uh, here, when we're recording, Amazon's flirting with new kind of all-time highs up around, let's see, 2,400 and change. You know, definitely flirting well over the trillion-dollar club and kind of nipping at the heels of, of Apple and Microsoft. Um which during a pandemic is kind of a, an unusual thing. So, um, you know, seems like they're seeing a pretty big surge. They had to turn off FBA sellers and, and a bunch of those kinds of things. Do you have any data that indicates how they're doing through the pandemic? Um, what's most interesting about Amazon is that overall their sales are up and yet any individual brand or seller is either very negatively impacted by this or very positively impacted by this. So you have this incredible kind of spread of people and companies who are very happy about their sales and very upset about their sales. But like Amazon overall is their sales are up and they're up enough that some people, like some sellers I talked to said, like it's basically they're having a prime day every day. And I mean, it's, it's, I think it's, it's still hard to judge just how much sales have increased on Amazon because given how large they already are, but they clearly have increased. Yeah. The, uh, give us an idea of the winners and losers. Is it, is, is it kind of category based? I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of obvious thing. Like if you look at travel, nobody's buying that. If you look at swimwear, no one is buying that. If you look at sunglasses, no one is buying that. And yet everyone's buying the things you would need for your house, the things you would need to work from home, the things you would need to get entertained while you're at home, as well as work out in the home. And then all the essential items, uh, like all the health items as well. So I think the spread of categories is probably the same across all the different retailers. So you did a blog post where bandanas were hot. Amazing. Amazing. I haven't bought one yet, but I did think about it because I tried, I tried buying face masks now for a while and they're obviously sold out everywhere. And if they're not, they're like, they're shipping from China and it's going to take a month to get to you. So I think, I think I'm going to get some bandanas and, and try to make a, try to make a face mask for me. Because one of the what are items we've been looking at is weekly look at search traffic on Amazon and see how the train trends have changed. And like for example, one of the trends I saw maybe now three weeks ago was the fact that like as toilet paper sold out, many, many people started buying bidets, which wasn't even like a popular category before on Amazon and all of a sudden it became hugely popular. And then maybe in early February, the biggest explosion I saw um, a friend, friends of mine manage uh, kind of Amazon advertising for a few different brands and one of the brands we manage Advent before sells um, kind of survival food kits and that brand went from selling um, let's say a couple million dollars a year to selling a couple million dollars a day on Amazon wow. and that's that's when I knew I'm like this is this is a, this is a serious crisis as well as people are really scared about it so to me I think like looking at the kind of the, the different changing consumer demand and Amazon kind of has been giving an interesting insight into what people think they need to kind of push through the days. Yeah. You had another blog post where you talked about some of the negatives of this surge. Uh, walk us through some of the data on that. Yeah. So one of the things we always look at is how many negative reviews are these merchants on Amazon receiving? And usually that number overall, that number tends to spike as Christmas approaches, because people have placed their orders, that order is not getting to them before Christmas, and then they realize it's never going to get to them in time, so they leave a negative review, and they usually kind of cancel the order. But then, 
as of last couple of weeks ago, I, I started looking at that number again. I started noticing that it's it's spiking even more than it, than it usually does. And a lot of that spiking in negative feedback on Amazon is coming from sellers who bought uh, face masks, uh, hand sanitizers, toilet paper, and all the other essentials from merchants who often don't have those products uh, and are using fake tracking numbers to kind of basically hide the fact that they are never going to ship a product or they ship the wrong products, like cheaper alternatives of the face mask, or when they order toilet paper, they ship a completely different item altogether. So um, as much as Amazon is increasing in demand, um, a lot of the kind of issues with the policing of the marketplace has have resurfaced as kind of merchants are trying to insert themselves into this massive wave of increased demand. And since... I mean, if you go to Amazon today, you will find that there is no face masks or hand sanitizers or toilet paper in stock. But yet as a merchant, if you claim that you have it in stock, you can try to kind of weasel your way into that search results page. And because that search result page is receiving so much traffic, you will get a few sales in before Amazon realizes they need to kind of, uh, they need to kind of block you. So Amazon has been in this kind of, crazy position of having to deal with actual issues of like fulfillment operations as well as employees. And now also having to deal with the sort of marketplace chaos, which is dealing with all the smaller merchants trying to kind of benefit uh, from the marketplace, not necessarily by selling something, but also sometimes by uh, selling something they don't actually have. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the level of difficulty was already complex. Now it's it's almost unimaginable. Uh, Like, Pivoting slightly, I'm sort of curious uh, how you think the pandemic is influencing how brands think about Amazon. Is it is it potentially driving brands to Amazon or off of Amazon, or or what are you what are you seeing there? Uh, I think anecdotally, I think all of us would probably agree that now we're starting to see brands go back to Amazon, go back to selling on Amazon. Brands who previously have refused that. Obviously, we've all seen the announcement from Birkenstocks who seem to be going back to Amazon. I think we're at the point in time now where the sort of ideological refusal of selling on Amazon in the past is probably being questioned by executives now because as they see their own sales and their own channels decreasing, they are trying to find other channels to to sell the items through. And if they are not selling on Amazon, it's an obvious choice and it's an obvious channel to have immediate sales. Um, so it's it's very clear that if not yet, the sort of acceleration in brands jumping back onto Amazon is definitely going to accelerate. Even for brands who have previously refused it blatantly, they, like, they will have to change their, um, their view. Because it's, it's while for the last decade, they could have made this kind of strategic choice of not to be on Amazon. That choice, I think, has kind of been taken away from them now because of just the sort of crazy conditions we are living in now, where so much of shopping has kind of centralized onto Amazon, uh, as and and the limited budgets they have to spend on marketing means that, like Amazon, all of a sudden became probably one of the better choices they have to have any sort of revenue. Yeah, it, it, there's there's almost this odd paradox at the moment. I think you're. You're exactly right. Like if you had decided you were staying away from Amazon, um, some of your resolve is probably eroded and there's 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 more arguments in favor of you being there. And I certainly think Amazon's going to emerge from the pandemic with greater share than they had going in. And so, you know, like same reason people uh, 
rob banks. That's where the money is. Like if you want to sell, <laughs> you, you probably need an Amazon presence. But the one paradox is there, there is a cohort of brands that maybe weren't very digital savvy and they almost looked at Amazon as 100% of their digital strategy. Um, and uh, if, if you're an apparel brand and you thought the main way you're going to sell digitally is on Amazon and you suddenly became a, a um, unessential product that couldn't get you know, your, your FBA product replenished, um, you probably were regretting being uh, exclusively dependent on Amazon. So it, it, on the one hand, I see a lot of brands that had been resistant moving towards Amazon. And on the other hand, I see a number of brands that were kind of single sourced on Amazon, you know, trying to diversify their portfolio a little bit. Are you, you seeing that as well? I think I'm seeing the same thing, like the sort of increase in demand for free PL warehousing services has definitely skyrocketed as brands are either trying to find other ways to sell on Amazon or kind of other, other warehouses they can use to sell on Amazon. And I mean, for many, many of these brands, they can't really do their own fulfillment as effectively as they kind of need to now, because often they don't even have this sort of warehouse capacity or staff for it. So um, yes, absolutely. I think many brands who've either relied on Amazon before or haven't sold on Amazon before, but now can't even ship their items to BA are all flocking to 3PL uh, logistic companies to do it for them. Cool. Uh, how about private label brands? You've done some interesting reporting there. What are you, um, any updates on what you're seeing there from the pandemic or any other thoughts on the, the plethora of Amazon private label brands? So one of the, I guess, one of the most infamous reports you've done was last year about that, uh, the Amazon private label brands and the kind of the core discovery from that was the fact that like their attempts are obviously very wide, but most of the brands they're launching haven't, haven't been as successful as most people would assume they are. And to be honest, like since then, Amazon itself as a company hasn't really been as aggressive in launching new brands. They are still launching Amazon Basics products all the time, but uh, in terms of the brands they would be launching, especially clothing brands, which kind of comprise most of their portfolio brands, that trend has definitely died down. And when, uh, uh, but in the same space, uh, a lot of the private label brands on Amazon are launched by the smaller, uh, smaller merchants. And as much as that is still happening, that obviously has been hit very, very hard by the pandemic. First, by not being able to source items from China as effectively as before. That is mostly recovered, but there's still some issues with the logistics from uh, from the point of view of costs and speed. But also, I think. Um, many, many, many companies in this space who previously relied on data to figure out what they should make, I think are finding that they can't use data as effectively anymore because the trends are changing so, so fast that by the time they're able to source, let's say, if you see that the bandanas are becoming high demand, by the time you're going to be able to source them and get them onto Amazon, it's going to be June and the demand is gone. So I think the sort of, the the stability of demand has previously allowed private labels to be built. And I think now that the stability is gone, I think it's it's a much harder job for these smaller merchants to do it. And also access to capital now is much more constrained. Amazon lending itself has killed their program and are not issuing any new loans. So for these smaller companies to get capital to launch new brands, it's, it's a much harder job. Well, let's... Uh... Let's pivot over to eBay. Um, they just announced a new CEO, and I'm I'm kind of excited about that. It's a guy 
Um, I think I've met him a couple times when he was there in kind of circa 05 to 08, I believe. Uh, his name's mm-hmm. Jamie mm-hmm. Aya Noni. Um, so, you know, they've been kind of rudderless for a while. Um, but, you, you know, and, and so their CEO departed about six months ago. They've sold StubHub. They're about to sell their classifieds or talking about it and whatnot. So they've been distracted by a lot going on. Do you think they've benefited in the same way that Amazon has during this pandemic? Um. I don't think so. Uh, and I don't think so for two reasons. First, um, if yeah, I was looking at web traffic across all the different retailers as well as eBay, eBay doesn't seem to have any sort of measurable lift from this, which I think is pretty disappointing for them. And I think second of all, um, I don't think many people think of eBay as a great place for essentials. And that's why so much of shopping is happening on Amazon as well as other kind of traditional retailers eBay is much stronger in other categories, but many of these categories are not that important anymore. So um, I'm sure they're going to have they're having some increase in demand in some categories, but overall, I would be pretty shocked if they're having an actual kind of measure, measurable major increase in sales because of the sort of the sort of weird positioning they have as a company, which I think only became more apparent and maybe more visible during this this, this pandemic. Any other interesting trends on eBay that to speak of? Are they losing sellers in this kind of sideways area that they've been for a while? Um, I think eBay, as uh, not unlike Amazon, has has been trying to police products on their uh, on their catalog as well. Uh, but since it's eBay, <laughs> to me, it's also like the most the most fun marketplace because you can buy a single toilet paper square on Amazon. On sorry, on eBay, pretty pretty easily, which obviously doesn't sell on other marketplaces. So. If you if you search for toilet paper on eBay, it's a much more eclectic mix of products than other retailers would would have. Um, and in terms of like seller uh, seller leaving, uh, eBay tends to have a pretty unique set of sellers. A lot of them are selling collectible goods. A lot of them are selling memorabilia. A lot of them are selling car parts. So like none of these sellers have clear path to other marketplaces. So I don't. I, there's no measurable kind of leaving of sellers from eBay or onto onto eBay. Uh, I think that's that's been mostly stable. Interesting. So they've they've sort of got those in, they have an advantage with some of those incumbent categories, but they uh they seem to be struggling in the categories where they overlap a lot of other marketplaces. Is that a fair summary? I think the biggest the, the biggest job for the new C, uh, CEO is figuring out just exactly what is the direction and what's the core focus of eBay. Um, I think eBay hasn't been able to answer that question for the last decade as it kind of tried to became closer to Amazon, but of all, like after all the years of efforts, it's now just a worse version of Amazon without any sort of benefits of, of, of Amazon. You, you would have just literally by shopping on Amazon. So eBay has to basically figure out like where where does it want to be? Does it still want to be in the same competition as the sort of the real real or the stock X or Etsy, or does it want to be more like Amazon and more do more general merchandise? Because now it tries to do all of those things at the same time and doesn't do a great job at, at any one of them. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be. In, I mean, that's a fundamental challenge for a lot of companies. But yeah, you definitely have to be able to have a clearly articulated reason for existing. Um, and so that's, that's going to be a challenge for Jamie when he, he gets to eBay. Uh, you know, he is coming from Walmart Sam's club. He had a lot of success sort of running 
e-commerce for Sam's Club and then got promoted to be, I think, I think his official title might have been like COO for all of Walmart.com. So um, it will be eBay, interesting. eBay has to disrupt itself, but I don't know anyone who has an idea of what that would look like. I personally don't have an idea uh, as well. Like it's unclear what eBay has to do to kind of to find new growth, but it's very clear what, what they've been doing for the last decade doesn't actually work. And if you look at their sales growth, it's non-existent. And the sort of incremental changes are not going to get them to the growth they want to see. So they can keep ex- extracting more and more revenue from the sales they're having. And that will continue to increase their stock price as a, as a, as a public company. But like in terms of a growing marketplace, a growing place people go to shop at, that's not going to happen unless they have like a major change in, in how they run the, the platform. For sure. It's no, it's no fun being the one losing share in a rapidly growing market. Um, the, what, what about some of the other players? Like I, I, I think of Wish, for example, as kind of being an interesting situation. Like it, it, it seems like it's not the most awesome time to be right between the U.S. and China um, in terms of trade, which, you know, is probably a negative. But then on the flip side, like they're very value focused and, you know, we're probably going to have a bunch of consumers in uh, uh in the U.S. in a pretty deep recession, you know, and, and maybe those like sort of affordable indulgences are going to, going to, you know, be more popular than they have been in the past. I'm a big fan of Wish because I think it's a very unapologetic marketplace. Like they're not hiding that most of the things it, they're, it's, uh, are coming from China. They're not hiding that most of these things are low quality and affordable goods. They're not hiding that it's going to take a while to get those items. But like them for doing that. But like as of two, probably two months ago, Wish has obviously completely collapsed because they rely so much on on-demand deliveries from China, that that which were first impacted by the, all the manufacturers closing down and are still negatively impacted by the kind of increase in cost as well as decrease in availability of all the uh, kind of deliveries from China. So um, I'm not going to put a number on it, uh, but their sales are down, and it's unclear yet of when they're going to be able to uh, recover. Because, like, uniquely from all these other companies, which mostly operate by running their own warehouses here domestically, which, while having some of the uh, assortment here in the U.S., uh, most of it comes directly from China. So, like, they're having issues with the demand side of things by maybe some consumers not buying so much anymore, as well as the supply things, as the supply side of things, which is deliveries and assortment size from China. So they're in a very tricky position, but at the same time, I think like Wish knew they, they could be in trouble when last year we were all discussing import duties from China. Like Wish is exposed to that very much. And I think now they're very clearly exposed to all the kind of international delivery as well as supply chain constraints. Yeah. A potential long-term risk there is... Um... Like so, they obviously rely a lot on the U.S. Post Office for the the last mile delivery in the U.S. And they've always benefited from these super favorable rates from a a, a very old um, sort of global postal treaty that we're a part of. And at, at the moment, like seems like the U.S. Post Office is like on the verge of economic collapse. Uh, I'm I'm hopeful that there's some some sort of last minute save, but it's it's very possible that that last minute save involves like renegotiating or getting out of some of those, those uh, um, international treaties. So it, it may not be uh, as favorable um, terms for wish uh, uh, 
however the U.S. Post Office uh, emerges from all of this. I agree. I don't think they're in a good position at the moment. They like they they built a beautiful business, and obviously, I've been able to grow it fairly well. I think it's uh, doing at least ten billion dollars in GMV, which is obviously a, a very major number. That's larger than most marketplaces would be doing. Uh, but it's also built on infrastructure they can't like reliably rely on. Part of that is obviously shipping from China, but also part of it is like not having any infrastructure themselves relying on USPS as well as all the domestic shipping partners in all the other countries they're in. So um, it's, yeah, it's not a great place to be in at the moment. Very cool. We really appreciate you taking time uh, during a busy pandemic time to come on the show. Any other, uh, any other trends? Um, you know, we had, uh, before the show, we talked about, you have some good hacks for making sure your Amazon order gets in. And I'd also love to hear your thoughts on, you know, where are marketplaces in three to five years? Um, so first of all, if, if you're relying on online groceries, you have to figure out a browser extension to help you with that. This is something I did, uh, maybe last week. And I, since then, I never had a problem placing an order, um, uh, on Amazon prime now. So it's a, it's a huge lifesaver. Um, just like a uh, honey or you wrote your own. No, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's basically a Chrome extension, which refreshes the checkout page on Amazon to try to spot a slot opening. And when, once the slot uh-huh. opens, it sends like a desktop notification to me. So you just have to leave it running in the background. And the next thing you know, you have, you can place your order. So that's been, that's been great. Uh, and then in terms of marketplaces, I think they, they are having, uh, especially now, obviously an incredible time because most consumer shopping happens through marketplaces. Uh, like marketplaces in the US already are combined the largest online retailer in the US. That to me is like the most interesting stat is that the, all the marketplaces combined or and the kind of the slice of the marketplace of, from Amazon is larger than Amazon and it's larger than any other retailer. So marketplaces already play a huge part, but I think what directions we are going into is A, niche marketplaces, which, done, which focus on particular categories and do content as well as kind of user community much better than Amazon or eBay could ever do. Uh, second, business to business marketplaces. That's a huge area of growth. Um, uh, obviously, you have Amazon Business as well as all the other marketplaces launching the space. A lot of the business buying is now being done through marketplaces. And even on Amazon side, that's the part of Amazon which most people completely forget or don't even realize even exists. And that's already a very huge part of their uh, their their sales. And then I think I think third, there's a lot of focus on managed marketplaces. So managed manage marketplaces are marketplaces which help you not only by providing you a wide selection of supply, but also they pick the thing you, uh, you, you want. So um, Uber is a managed marketplace because you don't pick the driver. Uber itself decides which driver is best for you. So we will see this continuously go in that direction as even, as even marketplaces like Amazon and eBay will be much more kind of pressured to be in a position of trying to help consumers to pick the item they actually want rather than providing them just an endless list of items available, millions of items in a catalog, and then relying on the consumer somehow picking the thing they want. So kind of to put it, to put it all in perspective, like, like marketplaces are going to be continuously growing bigger and bigger, but they're also going to kind of change in shape to move away from these generalized marketplaces like Amazon to focus on, on, their, on their own strengths. Because I think... If you're in a e-commerce business right now or you're trying to build a marketplace right now, 
it's probably a bad idea trying to go directly against Amazon's business or trying to build a marketplace which follows the same model. It's a much better idea to do something differently or to have a different model. And examples like Etsy and examples like Wish, like they're all doing really well on their own by by not trying to be like Amazon. And eBay, who did try to be like Amazon, are obviously not doing as well. Uh, Joe, you know, usually people that are pro marketplace on the show are really just pandering to Scott, but it's very obvious um, that that you have true religion about marketplaces. <laughs> They're uh, great. They are great. Yeah. No. And clearly, like globally, they they are winning. Like it's it seems like the 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 dominant, most successful form of. But to me, commerce. to me, I think to kind of put it all like in a final perspective, like to me, a marketplace is just a sort of reinvention of a shopping mall for the internet, which means they aggregate consumers in a single place and thus allow single shops or single brands to talk to these uh, consumers much more cheaply than them having to do their own kind of customer acquisition. And and thus, a marketplace will always make sense. And sure, you will always have brands and retailers who can run their own stores and can run their own acquisition, uh, but ultimately, a marketplace will always do it much more efficiently. The question becomes, like, how do you do that and still retain some kind of brand value and not give up all of it to uh to something like amazon yeah uh well well said and uh that seems like a great place to leave it because we have used up all our allotted time uh, as always if you had a burning question or comment feel free to hit us up on twitter or facebook um if this uh show is valuable to you we sure would love it if you jump on to itunes and give us that five-star review um uh joe real pleasure talking with you thanks very much for taking the time hey guys thanks for having me Joe, if folks want to follow some of the awesome content that you guys put out there, what's the best place? Marketplacepulse.com. Or if you want to find me, luckily I have the, one of the most unique names you can think of. So if you just, if you just Google my name, I, you'll be able to find me in two seconds. Uh, that is terrific. We will put, put uh, those links in the show notes. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 